Hello, and welcome to another episode of Pet Talk Podcast, the official podcast of Alicia Pet Care Center. Alicia Pet Care Center is a veterinary hospital in Mission Viejo, that's Southern Orange County, California. My name is Tim Whedon. I'm the office manager and media manager for the animal hospital and also the podcast host. And we are excited right now because our podcast is, well, we've said this before. And let's be honest, it's very busy in our hospital. It's difficult for us to pull time from our staff and especially our veterinarians to get a lot of these recorded. But one of the things we're really big on for our clients is educating on so many different issues. Veterinary medicine is so vast and even just dealing with dogs and cats like we do here at our animal hospital, there's so many different things, so many different issues just between those two species. So we feel like the podcast is an excellent way for anybody to tap into some of these different subjects, hear the thoughts and all of the different angles from our doctors, from our owner, and to be able to discuss these topics at length. And one of the really big things for us, we feel like we understand and empathize with our clients who are in an exam room, who are in the middle of their day, whatever that day may mean for them. You know, some of you are rushed and some of you have your kids and you're a little bit distracted in the room when our doctors are trying to discuss whatever plans for treatment or things that are going on with your pet. So this gives us an excellent opportunity for you to be able to come and listen at your leisure and re-listen, rewind maybe even while you're listening, take notes, and to really be able to dig into these issues all the more so than when you were here in our hospital. So we feel like this is a great, valuable tool, and we are pushing ahead in a massive way with our podcast in the year of 2019. We have a ton of topics on a board for our doctors to be weighing in on, and we absolutely welcome you to give us more of those. We'll tell you at the end of the episode the best ways to reach out and contact us. And this episode today is about liver disease. So there are so many different things tied in to the liver and so many different ways for this subject to be massively confusing and it's very involved for our doctors and our clients and all of that different blood work that you are doing and those test results that you're getting gone over with you in a room or over the phone. So we pulled aside Dr. Wheaton to talk about this extensively and talk about all of the different paths that this can take for you and for your pet. So let's dig right into this episode with Dr. Matthew Wheaton on liver disease. We are here today with the owner and chief of staff of Alicia Pet Care Center, Dr. Matthew Wheaton. Welcome, Dr. Wheaton. Thank you. Thank you for being here with us to talk today about liver disease with our clients and our audience. So I'll just kind of let you take it away and whatever jumps out at me as somebody who doesn't know a ton about this, I will ask you questions. Sounds good. So today we want to talk about liver problems in dogs and cats and give you an overview of the potential causes of liver disease, some of the solutions, and some of the 
thought processes that go into figuring out how to determine which cases need a big workup, what are the potential pathways that we can go down and try to chip away at this very confusing but super common topic to affect the health of dogs and cats. So as a very broad overview, a lot of you all are going to have a conversation at some point with your veterinarian that your pet's liver enzymes are abnormal. And as an extremely brief overview of that, all we're seeing is we're seeing liver enzymes that are elevated in the blood that indicate that there's some part of the liver cells that are unhappy and undergoing some degree of damage. And those enzymes are leaking into the bloodstream and we're picking those up when we check the blood. They mean different things based on different enzymes and whether it's a dog or cat and the severity of the enzyme elevations will provide different information. In general, in a dog, we have three different categories of things that can cause liver enzymes to be elevated. And that is hormonal conditions such as Cushing's disease or hypothyroidism, primary liver disease, which includes about a dozen different problems that can affect the liver on a primary basis, diseases that are actually happening in the liver itself, and secondary liver disease, which is the bulk of our dogs that are dealing with abnormal liver enzymes. And that is because the primary condition is in the gut and the liver in that way functions as a big lymph node in the abdomen, draining all the blood that goes to the intestine. And so if there's something wrong with the intestine, usually inflammation, the liver is going to take the brunt of that and be secondarily inflamed and release those enzymes into the bloodstream. In cats, they don't quite have the same story. Cats usually, when they have elevated liver enzymes, it's primary liver disease. Occasionally, you'll have a situation where you have a secondary component, but that is not as common. And the causes behind the liver enzyme abnormalities in a cat are going to be different. So we'll save them for last because cats are special and they're kind of the cherry on top of our story today, I think. So that's the 30,000 foot view on liver disease. Probably 80 to 90% of our dogs are going to have secondary liver problems. A very small percentage, probably 5% at the most of our dogs overall that have elevated liver enzymes are going to have primary liver disease. And then the rest of them are going to be hormonal. And in cats, it's complicated, of course, because they're cats. So let's dive into a little bit of this. And I'm going to give you a primer on the liver enzymes and how they work. And then we'll go deeper into the potential causes. Sounds good. So at any rate, you do your labs. We give you a call and say your pet has an abnormal liver enzyme. So let's talk about what the significance of that is. So let's go through some of these things. The most common liver enzyme that we're going to see abnormal in a dog is going to be alkaline phosphatase. We also call this alkphos. Alkaline phosphatase is a non-specific liver enzyme, which, which means that it comes from places other than the liver. So we can see this elevated from the one of the most notorious things, maybe something that people think about a lot, is with cortisone. And that can be external cortisone that we're doing via a pill. 
or some other medication, prednisolone or prednisone is a common one. And that will cause this, but internal cortisone called cortisol that's coming from the adrenal glands can also cause this to be elevated. And that is actually a kind of interesting wrinkle on this enzyme situation that those things cause elevation of an isoenzyme. And the isoenzyme is not exactly the same as alkaline phosphatase, but the machine sees it as the same result. So it's not exactly alkphos, but the machine is going to spit it out as alkphos. I'm getting a little deep in the weeds already, but one of the things that can cause that alkphos to be elevated is Cushing's disease, which is too much cortisol coming from the adrenal glands or externally because of medication. So that's one of the things that people, I think, somewhat know about a little bit from time to time. It seems like there's some degree of knowledge out there on that. So alkaline phosphatase is an enzyme that we'll see elevated in a dog. And there are other liver enzymes, ALT, which is the more common enzyme that we see elevated in cats. And it's frequently elevated in a dog. It's probably the most important liver enzyme that we see. And that is because it's a primary liver enzyme. So it only comes from the liver. It doesn't come from anywhere else. Those are from the the actual hepatocytes or the liver cells that are leaking this enzyme into the bloodstream and we're picking it up when we take the blood. But we'll get back to that. There's a couple other enzymes that are kind of minor players. AST, which is, again, a nonspecific liver enzyme. So we can see that coming from muscle tissue. And then we have GGT which is kind of a special liver enzyme that kind of points to a particular area of the liver associated with the bile system, biliary system, gallbladder, or inside the liver itself, the biliary tree or the cells that are actually secreting bile. So that's kind of a bile Avenue that we go down and The only other liver test that is really just a liver test is called a bile acids test, which is a liver function test. And then we have some liver-associated tests that can be things that go up or down depending on the liver function. So I'm going to back up. Let's say your dog has an elevated ALKFOS in the blood test. We're going to call and have this conversation, and we're going to say, There are three potential categories of things that can cause this particular enzyme to be elevated. And I would say this stands true for a cat with an elevated ALT and a dog with an elevated ALT and a dog with an elevated AST. And maybe we can throw GGT in there to some extent, although that kind of deserves its own little special conversation. So primarily it's ALKFOS and ALT in a dog. Three different categories. We look at hormonal causes. We look at primary liver disease. And we look at secondary liver disease. So let's talk a little bit about the hormonal causes in a dog. Cushing's disease and hypothyroidism are the main ones that we think about. Cushing's disease is extremely complicated and it deserves its own podcast episode. So look for that as a future offering by us. We'll definitely do a deep dive on this eventually. But Cushing's disease briefly is an overproduction of cortisol, which is natural cortisone from the adrenal glands. 
And 15% of the time that that happens in dogs, it comes from a primary adrenal tumor. So the adrenal glands are little teeny tiny glands that are next to the kidneys and they produce hormones. They are told to produce hormones various ways. The part of the adrenal gland that produces cortisol is told to do that by the pituitary gland in the brain. So 85% of the time that we have Cushing's disease in a dog, it's going to come from a pituitary tumor that is producing too much adrenocorticotropic hormone, ACTH. It's producing too much ACTH, and that's stimulating the adrenal gland to produce too much cortisol. So again, Cushing's disease can come from a couple different ways. That's going to cause that ALK-FOS potentially to be elevated. And that can happen and affect ALT as well. So that's Cushing's disease as far as the potential contributor. Now, there are some common symptoms associated with Cushing's disease. So when we're having this conversation, generally we'll ask, are you seeing any of those common symptoms? Common four symptoms that we see with Cushing's disease in a dog are drinking excessive water, producing a dilute urine. So you're going to have a, a higher volume of urine that's being produced. And potentially your dog is going to stand there for a longer amount of time urinating and producing, you know, a larger pool of urine, a increased appetite. And that could potentially be something that you're not going to notice. If you have a Labrador retriever that wants to eat everything under the sun, you're not going to probably know when there's an increased appetite because it's relatively high all the time. But some dogs will really go crazy for this. I've had people bring their Cushing's dogs in for diagnosis because they are really causing havoc at home. They're breaking into the kitchen cabinet and they are getting the food out of the cabinet. I have had dogs present with this symptom that have taken cans of food. So literally a tin can, the owner comes home and the cabinet is open. The bread is gone. And these cans are just flattened because the dog has actually taken the can in its mouth punctured the can, gotten everything out of the can and squished the can with his jaw, basically getting every speck of food out of the can. Crazy stuff. These dogs are really, they literally go insane with hunger. Oftentimes those are dogs that have pituitary tumors that are potentially also pushing on things, making the dog extra hungry, but an excess amount of cortisol can do that. Then the final thing is panting at rest. So you'll find that your dog may potentially not be in a hot environment and be sitting there panting. Panting is a really tough one to pin down because there's a lot of different potential causes for excessive panting in a dog. The most frequent cause is anxiety, and anxiety is going to be secondary to something. Typically, that might be pain. That could be some sort of illness a dog who's nauseated or a dog who's extra itchy potentially will pant because of anxiety associated with the symptom that's underlying that. But the Cushing's dogs will just pant excessively because of metabolic changes that have happened inside their body. And that is all associated with the excessive hormone from the adrenal glands. So the other hormonal problem that we see is hypothyroidism. So that's a low thyroid hormone coming from the thyroid glands. And that's not an uncommon problem in dogs. It's extremely rare in cats, but in dogs, it's relatively common. This is the typical issue that we see in people as well. 
the mechanism of why hypothyroidism causes alkaline phosphatase to be elevated is still complicated and a little bit confusing. And I am not going to go in depth on that here, but know that that is one of the potential conditions that can cause that alkphos to be elevated in a dog. Hypothyroidism, by the way, is going to be half the time completely no symptoms being noticed at home. Nothing's wrong with your dog. And some of the time you're going to have the classic thing where you have an overweight dog who can't lose weight, who's very low energy overall, maybe a poor coat, maybe some skin problems, not necessarily itchy, but some skin problems can be going on, skin infections, flaky skin, yucky, dull coat. But a lot of times there's nothing to see there. So we diagnose that a lot of times as a surprise to people as well. And oftentimes when we supplement them with hormones, the people notice that there's a big difference in their overall energy level and the dog's back on track. So that's the hormonal bucket. So we can sometimes get some hints of this when we're having our conversation with you that, oh gosh, yeah, over the last six months, I've noticed that my dog is really, really hungry and panting a ton, even when it's air conditioned house. And yeah, there's actually a lot of water that's being consumed. I'm filling the water dish up more frequently. So, you know, some of these things can be obvious that they might be contributing in that hormonal bucket. Some of the things that we see with Cushing's disease, we will also be able to determine based on lab work. So sometimes when we do the labs, we can say that Cushing's disease is not likely at all because the urine is very concentrated or something else along that line. So that is the hormonal bucket. Then the next bucket is primary liver disease. And this would be, I think, what most people think when they are being told that their dog has a liver enzyme abnormality is that the primary liver disease is what's going on. But that's actually less than 10%, maybe 5% of the actual dogs that have elevated liver enzymes will have true liver disease. So liver disease, primary liver disease, something happened directly in the liver. So our common things in dogs are chronic active hepatitis, which is inflammation of the liver. That is not a viral cause like it is in people. This is an inflammatory condition. Oftentimes, it's linked to other things going on in the gastrointestinal tract, but that would be one of them. You can also have cancers of the liver. So if you have cancer of the liver and it's even if it's benign, it potentially is angering some of those liver cells. And when the liver cells are angered and they're undergoing some degree of damage or inflammation, you will have the enzyme leak into the bloodstream and then you're going to pick that up. You can have degenerative changes. So there's several different types of degenerative conditions that can happen to the liver of dogs. And they're all a little bit different, but there's there's some degenerative changes. Then there are some issues associated with the gallbladder that will affect the surrounding liver cells. And that's not just GGT that's going to be elevated with a gallbladder issue, but potentially just ALT or ALKFOS. So with primary liver disease in dogs and an ALKFOS that's elevated, oftentimes that kind of pushes us in the direction of the biliary tract. Not entirely. Again, GGT is kind of the special one that would really help with that. GGT is not on every blood test, by the way. So if we were to do a mini panel that doesn't include GGT, we're not going to have that particular enzyme being measured. 
it's one of the benefits of doing a more comprehensive panel as we get more information about the liver in particular. But if GGT was elevated and ALKFOS was elevated, we would have concerns about the dog's biliary tract, which would be the gallbladder and everything that leads into that. At any rate, ALKFOS can kind of give us a little bit of hint on that as well with primary liver disease. There are about 12 different conditions minimally. There are some really rare ones too, of course, so the list actually goes on a lot longer than that. But there, there are a number of different conditions that are primary liver disease. And these are things that are all treated differently to some extent. So you don't have a one-size-fits-all as far as medicine goes with primary liver disease. And those are all things that would really be determined by a liver biopsy. So we'll, we'll get there. And I think that's about the bulk of the story with primary liver disease as it pertains to an ALKFOS. And then our third category is secondary liver problems. We sh- certainly will see ALKFOS elevated with this as well. And this is our, our most common problem that we see causing liver enzyme elevations in dogs. Secondary liver problems are going to typically relate to a primary cause of intestinal disease and usually intestinal inflammation. And usually that intestinal inflammation is coming in the form of inflammatory bowel disease. In a human, this would often be called Crohn's disease, which is a chronic inflammatory condition of the gut. So if you have inflammation that's happening in the gut, your lymph node in your abdomen, pretty much your main lymph node is going to be your liver. Your liver does lots of different things, but one of its functions is to function as a big lymph node. And if your intestine is inflamed, your liver will be secondarily inflamed, and then you're going to see those enzymes light up. So with ALT, which is a different enzyme, we will often see a similar type of causation behind that, where you have the same three buckets still in play, but ALT is going to be less commonly associated with Cushing's disease. It can happen, but it's not the common enzyme. Hypothyroidism, again, not as common as ALKFOS being elevated, but it can happen. Primary liver disease, now this is where we see the ALT almost always elevated because ALT, remember, is a primary liver enzyme. So it oftentimes will be elevated in a primary liver condition because the liver cells are undergoing some degree of damage from the actual condition that's happening in the liver itself. Hepatitis being, let's say, our good example to use. You have inflammation in the liver. That's going to cause death of cells. When the cells die or are damaged, they're going to release that enzyme into the bloodstream and we pick it up. So that is very commonly associated with primary liver disease. And then secondary liver disease, we actually have quite a bit of this as well. And that's really because the end result, again, is the same. You have the root problem in the intestine, but the liver's dealing with that. And so the liver ends up being secondarily inflamed, and then you have cellular death and damage and release of the enzyme into the bloodstream. So that's ALT. And then we have AST, which again can be elevated with muscle cell damage. We don't see this a lot, but occasionally you'll have a dog that comes in with, let's say it's a Labrador who has exercise-induced rhabdomyolysis. Oh, boy. It's a big word, isn't it? (laughs) What does that mean? That means that the muscle cells, so myo is muscle, but 
Rhabdomyolysis is where the muscle cells undergo damage during exercise and they break apart and they then spill their enzyme into the bloodstream. And that's a bad thing for a Labrador to have. That's a genetic condition. Typically, it can frequently happen to dogs that are um, active hunting dogs. Um, they're over. It's basically an overexertion kind of thing, but it's not just overexertion. It's it's going to be a special version of overexertion in a particular individual that is potentially going to then spin them into having a very bad, big problem with their liver because you can't. You have to do something with these muscles when they get broken down and damaged. It then filters through the entire system and causes all these secondary issues. That's a that's a whole nother podcast that we'll get to in like mm, I don't know ten years because it's we have a lot better topics. It's very very few dogs that we see with rhabdomyolysis, but anyways, that would be another potential cause of that AST being elevated would be muscle damage. Most of the time, it's actually coming from the from the liver, and that again is going to fall into those same categories that are going to cause it to be elevated. And then you have GGT, which is much more specific, like we talked about before, but it's, uh, could you see it with a secondary liver problem? Nah, it's not very likely. With intestinal disease, you're likely not going to have this unless you have some kind of problem with the biliary tract, which can happen because these things are all intimately associated with one another. So the liver is producing that bile and putting into the small intestine. If you have inflammation in the upper part of the small intestine near that outflow tract from the gallbladder, you can then pinch off that tube and potentially end up with a partial biliary obstruction, which makes it so that the gallbladder can't get the fluid out. Or you can have an infection in the intestine, which of course you have bacteria in the intestine all the time. But if you have inflammation that's happening, that's potentially diminishing the body's own ability to fight off infection, and you have an ascending infection that goes from the intestine up through the gallbladder, up the biliary duct, and can infect the gallbladder, and then you're going to have GGT be elevated because the gallbladder is infected, or the gallbladder is inflamed, or you have a partial biliary obstruction and the gallbladder's pissed off because it can't get that bile out. So there's lots of different ways that GGT can be elevated that has its root in intestinal disease or pancreatic disease, which the pancreas has its own outflow right near the gallbladder's outflow. So all these tubes are all kind of conjoined in this weird, I don't know if you've heard of traffic at the Y but we have this freeway near us where everything kind of dumps in together at the El Toro Y. And when you have that kind of situation, you have a lot of overflow from a lot of different areas. And that's kind of what happens in that upper part of the small intestine called the duodenum, or if you're from Canada, the duodenum. I was just going to say, and I didn't know that was Canadian, but I was going to say, or the duodenum. Uh, various <laughs> English-speaking countries besides the United States will say duodenum. Anyways. That's where all those tubes come into play. And if you have disease in the upper part of the small intestine, which is not unusual in a dog, you potentially have interplay of all these things. So it is so complicated. It's so yeah. exciting. It's so fun as a veterinarian to figure this stuff out. And we are ready for the challenge, by the way, at Alicia Pecker Center. Woohoo. 
but it is very complicated. And so it's, it's impossible as you can probably tell to give a lot of information. That's why when I have these conversations, I will tell people the, the extent of my knowledge at this point is that the liver's not happy about something. That's what we know. Mm-hmm. We don't know what the problem is. We won't know what the problem is typically unless we do extensive diagnostics, which we don't always do. And that is really dependent on the individual patient's struggles and whatever limitations are put on us by our pet owners or whatever the case may be. So with all that being said, it's very complicated, but let's move to the kitties because they are much more simple. A cat can have an elevated GGT, and that is not unusual because they are a little bit more likely to have biliary disease. That is because they frequently have inflammatory bowel disease much more commonly than dogs, and that biliary tree can be impacted by that. More commonly, you're going to see an elevation of ALT. That's going to be the most commonly elevated liver enzyme in a cat by far. And ALT is going to be elevated most of the time from something called cholangiohepatitis, which is inflammation of the liver, especially the part of the liver associated with biliary production or the biliary tree. And that is because that is the area that's susceptible to inflammation creeping up from the duodenum and affecting that biliary tract of the liver. But we will also see. ALT elevated in a cat due to inflammatory condition without involvement of the gallbladder. And we can see that with cancers as well. So if you have a 17-year-old cat, we don't really love to see elevated ALTs because sometimes that means that there's a, a tumor that's growing in the liver itself. And we can also see that the other liver enzyme, alkaline phosphatase, is elevated in a cat. And that is almost always associated with something called hepatic lipidosis, which the common term for this is fatty liver syndrome. And that's a condition that happens to cats when they are not eating. If a cat tries to produce energy from fat in its body, it has to go through this process that's very complicated, but it basically turns its fat into energy via the liver. When a cat does this, it does it in a very particular way. And it will clog the liver up with these fat cells. And that will impair the ability of the liver to function. So it basically gets clogged up with fat. And that causes a cat to become sick with hepatic lipidosis or fatty liver syndrome. So most of the time, we can kind of get an idea that this is happening because we've had a fat cat that, for whatever reason, went off of its food and lost a lot of weight. And the owner might be actually excited about that. But we've do lab work on them. And oftentimes we do this when they're sick and we see that their alkaline phosphatase is elevated, which points in the direction of this fatty liver syndrome. Occasionally we'll see it elevated just as a normal screening tool in cats. It's really uncommon that that's the case. Usually they're sick when they have an elevated alkphos as an adult. Now in dogs and cats that are growing, we talked about alkphos at the beginning of this. It's a nonspecific liver enzyme but one of the things that we can see in our young patients is that the alkaline phosphatase would be elevated in a growing bone situation. The bones, when they're growing, are releasing enzymes into the bloodstream as well. And 
those alkaline phosphatase elevations in a young growing puppy or kitten are things that we expect and we blow off because even though it's falling outside of the normal range, it's very common to see it elevated and it's not really meaningful outside of a normal bone growth situation in a young animal. So let's say we are having this conversation about liver enzyme abnormalities in your dog or cat. And we've now explained in an extremely confusing way that there are a number of different conditions that can cause it to be elevated. And we don't know what it is. And there is a limitation for real on our level of being able to interpret these results. We can kind of guess a little bit, but that's dangerous. And so we're going to have a conversation of what do we do next? So, of course, part of that is guided by you. So we we really do rely on our pet owners to be historians for us because we're not at home. So we need to hear in a dog, let's say, is the poop intermittently soft? Is it kind of a little bit soft every single day? No one I have found over time that has a dog is going to call soft stool diarrhea. They will only call it diarrhea if it's liquid stool. So we have to be careful also about how we ask our questions because chronic intermittent soft stool in a dog is the number one symptom that we see with inflammatory bowel disease. And if we have inflammatory bowel disease going on, we very well might get a secondary liver problem happening and see this elevated liver enzyme. So when we ask the question, how is the stool? We are not asking it just so you can say everything is great. We want to hear the real report that's happening at home because if we have an inkling that we might have inflammatory bowel disease going on, that's going to change the way that we're going to approach that particular case. So it's important to be very critical. Just as a side note, you really should be expecting a normal poop from every dog every time. And normal, I think we all kind of know, I guess we kind of assume that we all know what normal poo is, but it should be dense and easily picked up with no residue. Color is not so important. Um, It's the consistency of the stool. So it should be nicely formed, dense stool that doesn't leave a residue when you pick it up, is not really extra moist. It doesn't squish easily when you pick it up. You're kind of like, you know, picking up a soft serve ice cream cone. Sorry about that. And I am not having soft serve ice cream. Well, yeah, just make sure you get just vanilla this weekend. Vanilla. Vanilla is go. a good idea. There you go. So we will go down this question answer sort of situation and determine what the next step is. Oftentimes, we're going to want to prove a second data point. So I think if the dog is not sick or the cat is not sick, maybe in a cat, it's a little more meaningful in a cat if we see liver enzymes, so we might move quickly. But if we see that the enzymes are elevated, we might wait a beat and recheck that enzyme in one month, two months, three months, something along that range. It's a little bit up to the veterinarian's discretion. And if we get a second data point, we see that those enzymes are elevated again. The important part is not that they are a little higher or a little lower. It's really that they're persistently elevated. So if we see that they're elevated again, we're going to have a deeper conversation of, okay, well, now what do we do next? So what we do next is really going to be up to the team making this decision with whatever limitations, philosophies, 
urgency from the veterinary side, all of those things in mind. Not every dog is going to get a full liver workup. I would hazard a guess that the vast majority of them are not going to get a full liver workup, at least at Alicia Pecker Center, because we are a very results-oriented practice. So we have found at the beginning of the story of us determining patients having liver enzyme abnormalities, we have determined that not every single one of these needs to be worked up fully. Oftentimes you have a dog who has a mild liver enzyme elevation throughout its entire life with no clinical significance. But everybody is, every dog is different. Every situation is different. So we have to operate in a way that is going to protect the group against having those rare situations come to a higher level and us losing our opportunity at minimizing progression and creating a disease state. So our next move might be that we want to look at that individual's liver with an ultrasound. And if we do an abdominal ultrasound on a dog or cat, we're going to be able to evaluate all of the liver, the gallbladder, the intestines, the stomach, the pancreas, and the rest of the organs in the abdomen. But those are the big things. Those organs are all going to relate to potential liver enzyme abnormalities that we might pick up. So that's a great tool because it's a non-invasive tool. It doesn't require um, anesthetic. It's not going to require surgery or anything like that. And most of the time, it's not going to require sedative for that pet. So it's a pretty good test, like a x-ray. It's relatively easy to do and relatively easy to interpret. It's a little more complicated to interpret than an x-ray, but Our doctors at Alicia Pecker Center are all highly trained in ultrasounds, and so we should be able to give you a a pretty good idea of what's going on based on just our doctor staff here performing the test and and giving you that feedback. And some of the things that we're going to be able to determine on an ultrasound right off the bat is, is there a lesion in the liver that we can see inside the actual structure of the liver? Does the gallbladder look normal or not? Is the biliary tree the part of the liver that leads up to the gallbladder or the biliary duct that leads from the gallbladder out to the intestine? Are those things normal? Is the liver small or is the liver big or is the liver misshapen or is there an obvious tumor? Those are all things that we would be able to determine on an ultrasound. Now, there are massive limitations to ultrasound and With the liver, primarily, there is a big limitation because you can have advanced disease in the liver and not have any structural changes on the liver that the ultrasound would pick up. So it is not a perfect test. It's going to miss some things. We can also, though, look at the pancreas. So if the pancreas is abnormal, we're going to see that on the ultrasound. And that's going to look a couple different ways depending on what the actual problem is with the pancreas. We're going to be able to look at the small intestine, and this is an important thing as it pertains to intestinal disease. If you have inflammatory bowel disease, there's a good chance that your intestine wall is going to be thickened because of inflammatory cells that have gradually added on top of each other in the intestinal wall. So that may cause intestinal wall thickening that we would also be able to determine based on an ultrasound in a dog or cat. And we may be able to determine that there are no abnormalities associated with either one of those things, which puts us into a position of 
I don't know, breathing a sigh of relief potentially that we don't see anything. And so we just gradually keep watching these enzymes and unless our patient is acting sick. So that's one thing that we can do to flesh this out a little bit more. They, uh, one of the other things that we can do is do something called a bile acids test, which is a liver function test. And the liver function test tells us just that. What is the function of the liver? Is it normal or is it abnormal? And if the liver function is abnormal, if the bile acids test comes back abnormal, that is concerning because the liver has a lot of redundancy. Just like our intestinal tract, there's a lot of redundancy there as well. But with the liver, if you were to chop out a third of the liver surgically, you would have no negative consequences of doing that, which reflects this redundancy thing that that we talk about which means that you can have a lot of disease in the liver and still have a very functional liver. So if you have an abnormal bile acids test, it does put a little bit of a fire underneath you to figure out what is going on because this condition is so significant that it's now affecting the function of the liver. And I'm extra concerned about that because the liver has a ton of redundancy. So the bile acids test is not going to tell you what the problem is, but it may tell you how severe the problem is and may push one case or the other to do more definitive testing to find out what the actual issue is. The main test that's going to tell us exactly what's going on in the liver with primary liver disease is a biopsy. And we are in a great place at Alicia Pet Care Center now to obtain liver biopsies because we can do that with our laparoscopic surgery equipment. So our team is trained now for laparoscopic surgery. This is a very routine and relatively easy procedure to perform with laparoscopic equipment where you now are making a a very small incision in the abdomen. It, It does require general anesthetic, but you're able to go in with a camera, visualize the liver, the outside of the liver. You can't obviously visualize the inside of the liver. You're doing that with ultrasound primarily. But the outside of the liver, you can go and look at with your camera and determine exactly where you want to take that biopsy, can see that you're doing it very safely. You can obtain that biopsy and a very nice size sample that the pathologists are appreciative of not having these like tiny fragments to work with. We'll get there. How would you get one of those fragments? But um, we'll get a great quality biopsy sample. And we're going to be able to determine with the camera viewing it the entire time that there is no problem with bleeding after the fact. If we do have a little bit of bleeding, we can use a blood clotting sponge that we can put in there with the laparoscopic equipment and then, again, monitor and make sure that the liver is not continuing to bleed. So that's an excellent way to get a liver biopsy. There are two other ways of getting a liver biopsy that are not as preferable to laparoscopic because they're either more invasive or they're more dangerous slash also not giving us a great sample. So the more invasive way to do it is with an abdominal exploratory surgery where you're going in surgically and you are taking chunks of the liver out with your hands and instruments. The benefit of doing it that way in certain cases is that we can also do intestinal biopsies at the same time if we have a concern that we might be dealing with intestinal disease as the primary condition, which, as I stated before, is a really common scenario. So that is not necessarily a bad test. 
it's a more comprehensive test and it, it actually might tell us a lot more than just getting a simple liver biopsy in certain cases. And the other way of doing a liver biopsy is to do it via ultrasound guidance with a, a biopsy needle. The biopsy needle goes in externally. Usually the patient is heavily sedated for this. And the biopsy can be monitored through the ultrasound and directed towards a specific area of the liver. And then your biopsy is a core biopsy, which is a, a little kind of worm fragment taken from inside the liver. And this can work out relatively well, but you do have some potential downsides of sometimes your, your sample quality is not great because you're getting, you know, kind of blindly going in. It's, it's not entirely blind because you can see it with the ultrasound, but it's not perfect. You can have bleeding and the bleeding is problematic because you're not in there. You're not able to actually do anything externally except for just monitor it with the ultrasound. And you're also not entirely able to visualize the area that you want because with liver disease, oftentimes you have widespread disease. So you're not able to actually see anything other than the internal structure of the liver with the ultrasound. Sometimes you can see that there's a lesion there. And quite honestly, sometimes we get a little scared about sticking a needle into a lesion in the liver without being able to see what's going to happen afterwards. So there's some risk associated with a, a guided biopsy of the liver via ultrasound with a needle. There's some potential for not the samples that we want, and there's potential for some negative consequences from taking that sample itself. That's primarily it as far as diagnostics go for the liver, aside from one thing that is something that we might do in particular breeds in particular circumstances. So one of the things that we haven't talked about yet is something called a portosystemic shunt or a liver shunt. These are special circumstances that happen in usually particular breeds. So we think about the Yorkie as the number one breed for this condition. The Yorkshire Terrier has a very high risk genetically of developing a liver shunt. And what that is, is a blood vessel that was supposed to go away when the embryo developed that did not go away and it takes blood away from the liver when it's coming out of the intestinal tract. So normally what happens is blood vessels, like we talked about before, the blood goes from the intestine to the liver back up into circulation. That works really, really well for life because the liver is going to detoxify the things that are coming out of the intestine. It's going to break down waste products and toxins that it's kind of in a way working as a filter and a detoxifying organ, but that's not allowed to be happening because the blood vessels didn't go away. So this blood vessel potentially stays there and shunts blood away from the liver. And now the liver is not able to do its job. So we have a consequence from that in that our generally our young patients have toxins that are going straight to the brain instead of going through the filter of the liver. And so it will cause potentially neurologic disease in a younger patient. It can make them have ataxia, which is in coordination. Um, they can be very dull. And they're basically kind of like being poisoned all the time a little bit from their own body because the liver is not able to do the normal job that it's set up to do because the blood is not getting to it. So there's a really great test for this 
that can be done at one of our neighboring specialty hospitals up in Tustin that's called a shunt scan. And that is um, very exciting. I think, Timothy, I think you'll like this. It is a radioactive enema. Oh, boy. You think I'll like the sound of it. Yes. You're saying, right? No, yes. you're not going to like it. No. But um, it's it's kind of exciting when you think about it. You're, the technology you're getting, of it. Yeah, you're getting uh, the technology is technesium. There you go. So radioactive technesium, it's sometimes called a tech scan, but you put this radioactive substance up into the colon and the normal liver is supposed to be taking that out of the intestine through the blood, through the vessels that lead straight to the liver. So in a normal patient, you would be able to see this radioactive marker on a computer screen that's, you know, assessing the radiation in the patient. It goes into the colon and then it goes up to the liver and then it goes back up into the heart. But in a patient that has a liver shunt, the liver just gets bypassed. It just goes straight into the colon. So we put it up there and then it goes straight up into the heart hmm. and bypasses the liver entirely. And you can see this in the monitoring equipment that's looking at this radioactive, these radioactive markers that we just put up in there. Now, it's not dangerous to do that. It's, this is a benign radioactive material that is just excreted and nothing, no, you know, bad things happen to the individual patient, but it's a great test for a shunt. It's, we're actually very lucky in the country to have a facility so close to us that does this because a lot of the country has to travel, you know, hundreds of miles to get to a specialty center that would offer something like this, but we have it right in our backyard. It's a really quick and easy way to get to the answer of does my dog have a shunt or not? And there are other things that we can do for diagnosing a shunt. Usually what happens is your puppy has an abnormal liver enzyme. Oftentimes this is being done prior to spay or neuter. And we see, oh my gosh, the ALT is five times normal. And you happen to have a three pound Yorkie. Maybe that's also doing some odd things at home by acting a little weird, especially around meals. After a meal, it kind of gets a little quiet, a little lethargic. Um, maybe it's having more symptoms than that, but we immediately say, okay, we need to do a bile acids test on this dog before we spay it because we're going to put anesthesia in that's going to have some, some degree of an effect on the liver. We don't want that to happen because the shunt patients will potentially take two days to wake up from their mm -hmm. anesthetic event. It's one of the big reasons why we do blood testing in regards to um, an anesthetic patient because the liver is going to play a big role in detoxifying all the, the anesthesia that we put in. At any rate, we're going to do a bile acids test on that patient and it's going to come back super high typically because the liver is not functional. Remember, the liver is not getting blood flow. So not only is it not able to do its job, but it's also not getting nutrients that it needs to be able to successfully grow and be a healthy organ. So the liver function is going to be bad and your bile acids are going to be almost always relatively high. If we have that scenario play out, then we're going to send a, a young dog up for a shunt scan up to Dr. Broom and Tustin. And Dr. Broom is going to do this shunt scan and he's going to call us back and say, your dog has, your patient has a liver shunt. And then that has its own podcast associated with, you know, fixing 
a liver shunt and what do you do and yada, yada, yada. So that's the story of shunts in a puppy. And we got there because we were talking about bile acids being abnormal. Cats will get a bile acid abnormal relatively infrequently because they usually don't have such severe disease that it actually causes them to go into liver failure. But remember, the bile acids test is a liver failure test or a liver function test. And so some dogs that have primary liver disease will have, at the end of their liver disease playing out, significant decrease in function because they've kind of eaten up their liver cells, normal abilities to do their normal thing. So we sometimes get ourselves into a situation where we have very difficult decisions to make. With liver disease, I think it's especially challenging because much of the time we don't know what the actual problem is. And that's because much of the time we're not going to do a liver biopsy because the patient's symptoms don't necessarily warrant it. Maybe we measure these liver enzymes over, you know, a period of six to 12 months and we see that they don't, they don't really elevate all that much above the mild elevation that they had, or maybe they fluctuate and they normalize and then they come back up again. And maybe our patient doesn't really seem to care whatsoever, which we don't want to get lulled into a place of complacency because that can end up biting us in the butt. But we also don't want to do a liver biopsy on every single patient because there is some risk associated with that test. So we don't want to paint every single patient into the same place. It, they're, they're all different and it's all very complicated. With liver disease especially, we have to kind of practice veterinary medicine as an art. And a lot of this also has to do with our owner limitations. So if we have a financial restriction, that's going to limit what we can do test-wise. And if we have an owner that's having a hard time getting their head around this, which is really common. Honestly, I, I understand this a lot. People look at their dog, the dog is totally normal. And the ALT might potentially be 600 and it shouldn't be ab above 130 and it's, it's super high. And the patient is walking around like nothing's wrong. It's going to be very difficult for most owners to say, let's go and, and spend, you know, $400 to do an abdominal ultrasound and go pursue a laparoscopic liver biopsy at, you know, a cost of several hundred dollars. Most people are not going to want to do that unless there is a significant reason to do so. And so we have to balance out the, the search for knowledge based on our patient's needs and what the, what the likelihoods are and our client's hopes, dreams, desires, limitations. So it's super complicated, as you can tell. And we are only kind of scraping the surface here. With There's so much to talk, to talk about with various liver diseases that are in and of themselves. In theory, a whole podcast episode could be done on cholangiohepatitis in a cat or copper storage disease issues in a dog. So I think... The main takeaways that we want you to get with this podcast is that it's extremely complicated. It is not necessarily the end of the world to get your pet diagnosed with a liver enzyme abnormality, but it is also something that we can't blow off. It's something that we have particular treatments for, 
based on the individual diagnosis that is made if we get to the point of making a solid diagnosis. And I think the thing that I would want to leave with is a discussion about liver supplementation because that is oftentimes what we end up doing in a dog especially. Because again, oftentimes the best we're going to be able to do is to say that we know that there's something that's making the liver unhappy about things. And we don't want to get super aggressive. We as a team, potentially the client, the client doesn't want to get super aggressive at diagnosing the liver problem itself. So we're not going to get a liver biopsy done. We might not be able to do a bile acids test. We might be put in a position where our monitoring is not happening as often as we would like. And the patient potentially is not showing any degree of illness associated with this. And the nice thing about the liver is that we can actually play this supplementation card to enhance the special things that we have about liver cells. And one of the things that's special about the liver is that it's kind of like a lizard's tail where it can regenerate. Mm -hmm. So the cool thing about the liver, besides the fact that there's a ton of redundancy, is that the liver cells can actually regenerate. And so if we set the liver up to improve its health, we're going to have the potential of helping that liver regenerate itself and protecting ourselves against chronic degeneration of the liver that eventually can lead to a very bad situation where we don't have a whole lot of functional liver cells left. So we think about three different categories of liver supplementations as well. And these are all evidence-based things, which means that there are studies that have been done multiple times to prove that these are very effective moves that can help with the liver cells being more healthy and being able to regenerate themselves. So those three things are omega-3 fatty acids, milk thistle, and SAMI. So we'll start with SAMI. SAMI is an amino acid that has various properties, but one of the things that it does is it helps the liver cells be more functional. It decreases inflammation mildly in the liver and stabilizes cell membranes, so it kind of resists ongoing damage to the liver. Interestingly, SAMI in people has lots of different uses, including treating depression. So it, it actually can do a lot of different things. One of the things that I would say about SAMI is that it's one of the more expensive products that we're going to use. And ideally, but it doesn't always have to happen this way, but ideally it's given on an empty stomach. So most of the SAMI is going to want to get to the mid intestinal zone and it can only do that if it's not being digested in the stomach. And so once you feed a pet, there's all these digestive enzymes that are going to be released from the pancreas and from the gallbladder. We just learned about that a little bit. But all of these things that are happening in the stomach and upper small intestine that are going to break things down, we don't want that breakdown to be happening there. So we want to kind of try to slide into the mid-intestinal zone so that the product can actually be taken up there rather than being broken down and digested in the stomach and upper small intestine. So in my own personal practice, and, and I don't mean Alicia Pecker Center because we're all a little bit different in this, 
I will save Sammy for my patients for last because I think it's a little harder for the client to do this particular supplement because the timing is important and it's a little bit more expensive. I like omega-3s first and that's because it's also going to help with a lot of different areas of the body. So omega-3 fatty acid supplementation absolutely deserves its own podcast, but that is a product realm that can help almost every cell in the body improve its function or health. So everything that ends in itis, so every every inflammatory condition, so gastroenteritis to hepatitis to arthritis, all of those inflammatory conditions will be helped by omega-3s because omega-3s are natural anti-inflammatories. They also stabilize cell membranes and decrease ongoing damage to cell walls. They have some degree of an antioxidant property to them as well. So lots of cool things that come from omega-3s. So you're not going to only get your effect in the liver, but you're going to get it all over the place. And if you have a situation where we have intestinal disease as our primary condition and our liver is taking the brunt of that, then again, omega-3s are a great choice because you're going to get anti-inflammatory on both ends of the problem. Omega-3s, again, deserve a long talk, but the really, really brief statement on this would be that fish oil is kind of a middle-of-the-road choice. It would be an affordable choice for dogs and cats to get omega-3s from fish oil. They're readily available. They're pretty affordable. You are going to be getting primarily DHA and EPA out of that, and it's easy to do. The stronger omega-3 is going to be from greenlit muscle oil. And briefly on greenlit muscle oil, you are dealing with a much stronger anti-inflammatory because of the spectrum of omega-3s that are in greenlit muscle oil. Greenlit muscle comes from the sea creature in New Zealand. And there's 18 different omega-3s associated with greenlit muscle oil. And they are going to be produced in a low heat environment. So it's going to maintain the structure of those long chain fatty acids. And maybe most importantly, there is a fatty acid called ETA that is coming from greenlit muscle oil that's found nowhere else in the world as of yet that is very, very similar to something called arachidonic acid. And so that is the thought of why it likely is much better on the anti-inflammatory side is that it is potentially being substituted into the inflammatory cascade instead of arachidonic acid. So ETA becomes a very important omega-3 that is only found in greenlit muscles. So omega-3 is definitely a helpful move and something that is potentially going to provide widespread benefits. And then milk thistle would be our third one uh, supplement that we would think about. And milk thistle is, again, affordable, pretty widely available, although you're going to find different forms of it. Um, we have a great supplement here that comes from an organic farm up in Montana. But milk thistle is a product that has been around, obviously, for an extremely long time. Um, indigenous population been using this as a liver supplement, you know, since kind of probably prehistory times. And it just does really cool stuff for the liver cells in that it, again, decreases inflammation, increases the ability of them to regenerate and heal, and is a very benign, safe medication that doesn't have to happen on a particular time schedule like the SAMI does. 
So oftentimes what's going to end up happening is we're going to identify that the liver enzymes are abnormal. We may do some additional testing. If we don't do a liver biopsy, frequently the end result is that we're going to use liver supplementations and ongoing monitoring to determine what the next move is. If we move somewhere else to do more diagnostics, that's probably going to take the form of either doing an abdominal ultrasound or a bile acids test. And that may lead us, either one of those tests may lead us to doing a liver biopsy, which is where we're going to actually find the real cause of the liver enzyme abnormalities themselves. And that is very occasionally done, um, but that would tell us the full story. And this is why we just love looking at our blood tests when we get in in the morning. And we did maybe, you know, half a dozen wellness labs on our patients the day before. And we get in, we look at our labs and we see that we have two or three dogs that have abnormal liver enzymes. And how long have we been talking about this? Half an hour? <laughs> we, we get relatively frustrated because we, we feel that we, we feel compelled to give you guys the answers to your questions and to give you a clear understanding of what's going on. And much like so many things in this world, it's very complicated. And so we feel compelled to have, you know, some degree of this conversation. Hopefully this podcast will serve as a resource for pet owners to get a, an extended version of that talk, um, potentially even, you know, for pets that we're not actually vetting across the world but hopefully this has been helpful to you all to understand the complicated nature of liver enzyme elevations and what they might potentially mean and how to deal with them. Okay, so tell me, I know that, you know, I've, I've had my understandings from the outside world of liver issues and maybe not so much as with animals as with humans, but talk about like, what about the people who supposedly get very yellow when and they're very sick when they have liver issues is this not something that carries over to the animal world that's a that's a great question um we do have that in dogs and cats but it has to be advanced disease so that that generally if it's a that can happen actually from things that are not liver problems so your red blood cells can break apart and cause that same kind of thing but if it's liver disease, you will potentially become jaundiced. So, right, you've, you've heard of that word jaundice is sometimes used with babies. Mm -hmm. So that's the most common thing I think that we hear about is, is my baby was born jaundiced and I need to do that, you know, special UV lights. And that's a whole different thing entirely. We don't deal with that at all in dogs and cats. But you can become jaundiced with end-stage liver problems. That's really bad. Mm -hmm. So when we have a patient that comes in yellow, it's usually a very advanced liver condition that's going to be difficult for us to actually get back to normal. We may be able to manage that patient for a time, but usually those are, are more severe liver problems. And generally it reflects, unfortunately, conditions that have been allowed to progress for a long period of time and they've just kind of eaten away the function of the liver over time and then you have liver failure in the area of the biliary tree and you get a buildup of those dyes so to speak it's different colors that happen that the liver is supposed to be taking care of 
and then your body will show that kind of yellowy color. It's very bad in a dog and cat to have that sort of thing show up. Mm -hmm. Because they've already progressed to a... Yeah, because it's so late. There's a lot of times not a lot that we can do to reverse the problem. And we end up, you know, kind of just managing that end-stage liver disease patient for as long as we can, you know, based on their quality of life, maintaining okay. So it sounds like some of the symptoms that you that are visible as a pet owner, some of them seem very almost low detection level unless you are aware of what you are looking for and speaks to something that maybe is another podcast episode um, in regards to the benefit of the annual blood work or the wellness exams. I think blood work primarily because you're not going to you're not going to pick it up typically on a physical exam unless you have an extremely big liver mm-hmm. or you have a patient that's jaundice and most most yellow patients are coming in sick so it's very uncommon that we look at a patient and say oh you're coming in for a well pet exam and your pet is yellow what is this all about that's that's really really rare so yeah, the, the symptoms are tough because they're usually very vague. So the most common thing is that you're going to see chronic intermittent soft stool with a dog that reflects intestinal disease that then reflects back on the liver and you get a secondary liver problem. Beyond that, unless your dog is extremely sick, you're probably not going to know that there's liver disease going on at all. Mm-hmm. So symptoms, symptoms are tough. It, most of the time this reflects an owner that is allowing for us to do our our normal annual wellness panels and finding these markers, you know, before the clinical symptoms come. Mm -hmm. So I have a friend of mine from years ago who his dad died of cirrhosis and you didn't really mention that at all. Is that is cirrhosis even something that goes on with pets? It is cirrhosis. Cirrhosis actually just really means scarring. And so you can absolutely have cirrhosis of the liver in a dog or cat. And that is going to end up being a very bad scenario again, because you're going to have scarring down of the liver. And that's typically an end stage liver disease sort of scenario. And there's, there's different conditions that can lead to cirrhosis in people and in, in animals, but in people, the vast majority of it is going to be related to alcoholism and you're just basically damaging your liver cells all the time they're mm-hmm. functioning as a as a toxin remover but you're you're killing them and doing it in a consistent way if you're an alcoholic you're drinking you know every single day potentially and never really giving your liver a chance to regenerate and so you kind of just destroy your liver that way it can also happen though secondary to inflammation so on the human side another um, cause for cirrhosis would be any of the hepatitis um, viruses. So there's, there's different types of hepatitis in people, but hepatitis means inflammation of the liver. So you have a chronic smoldering inflammatory condition of the liver that's caused by a virus in dogs and cats. It's not typically viral. We actually have vaccines against those things that are routinely done. That's another reason why you want to stay on top of your vaccines. But beyond that, viral cause is inflammatory causes. And those are, you know, a very high cause for uh, our primary liver disease patients to present dogs and cats having hepatitis. Those are 
common types of primary liver disease. If you have hepatitis that's going on for a long period of time, you eventually will take away the ability of your liver to function properly because you have replaced liver cells with inflammatory cells and you now have scarring that results from that and you end up with a cirrhosis scenario and typically a yellow patient. Hmm. Well, this is all very, uh, as you said, extremely complicated, but I, I didn't realize personally what we were walking into as we started this episode. And I feel like I understand it a lot more. I know that we already have some of these things planned to go into other podcasts. And I think we've opened up a couple more that we now know that we need to record. So I will tell you also make sure you look at the list of our different episodes. So you are linking some of these things together. But huge appreciation to Dr. Wheaton for taking this time out of one of your days off to educate us on liver disease and liver enzyme abnormalities. And I, I know that this will be a huge resource for a lot of people, like you said, not just that potentially we are vetting in the hospital, but around the world. I hope that it's going to add to your normal veterinarian's talk that maybe was confusing to you because again, I I feel really bad having these conversations with people because we're trying to dump literally like two years of physiology and specific learning that we have obtained on liver conditions into an owner's brain in hopefully no more than 15 minutes on the phone. Mm -hmm. It's really challenging to do that. So Hopefully this will be an added resource to a lot of people out there to enhance the conversation that you've already had with your veterinarian and to be able to understand a little bit better. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you again, Dr. Wheaton, and we will have you back in again for another one of those episodes. Thanks for having me. Okay, and that is the end of this episode on liver disease. Thank you so much for joining us. We hope that that really answered a lot of those questions. And if you have more or if you have more topics that you want us to discuss, send us a line. You can drop us an email at wecare@mypetsdoctor.com. You can also contact us through social media. The podcast has its own website. It's www.pettalkpodcast.com. We are also on Twitter for the podcast, and that's at Pet Talk Podcast. You can also look us up on Facebook, on Instagram, on Twitter, on Snapchat, even for the Animal Hospital. Our username for all of those is APCC Vet. And of course, on Facebook, it's just Alicia Pet Care Center. You can send us messages through there or interact with us on any of the topics that we bring up or things that you want to talk about. And depending on where you found this podcast today, we do have the podcast available on the Apple native app on your iPhone or your device, and also available for all you Android users 
on Google Play and on Stitcher Radio. We're working on getting on Spotify. And you can also just go right to the website, www.pettalkpodcast.com and listen to the episodes there. You can share those with your neighbors or friends or family members that may be dealing with any of these issues as well. That is great. So thank you so much for your time. We hope that you got a lot out of this episode. I know I learned a lot while talking about this with Dr. Wheaton, a lot more than I even expected to. So we are sure that you probably got a little bit out of this as well. And keep your eyes open for the next episode that should be coming out in a few weeks or so. Thanks so much. 